Welcome to the Evoking History Podcast. We are called as a people to give testimony in the sight of the world to our faith that the future shall belong to the free. Since this century's beginning, a time of tempest has seemed to come upon the continents of the earth. Masses of Asia have awakened to strike off shackles of the past. Great nations of Europe have fought their bloodiest wars. Thrones have toppled, and their vast, vast empires have disappeared. New nations have been born. For our own country, it has been a time of recurring trial. We have grown in power and in responsibility. Welcome back to the Evoking History Podcast. With me this week is my friend and colleague from Marquette University, Lisa Lamson. She is a PhD candidate in American History and the Arthur J. Schmidt Leadership Fellow. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for being on in this uh, time of change. That <laughs> That's what you're putting. So, um, I, I gave your bona fides. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your education and what it is that you actually study? Okay, um, so I guess the, the first thing I always sort of introduce myself as is I'm biracial. My mom is from the Philippines and my dad is from the interior of Maine, which is, uh, I jokingly say it's where cold and white people come from. Uh, he's not fond of that joke, but it's like the, the two diametrically opposed places yeah. parents could come from. And I grew up in Washington and Alaska, both on islands, actually. I did not move to any sort of mainland until I was 20. So absolutely an island kid. Um, and I did my undergrad at the University of Washington, uh, Seattle campus in 2009, uh, or, and I graduated in 2009. And I started grad school at Bowling Green State University in Ohio in 2012, um, where I graduated with my MA in history in 2014 and my M.Ed. in Curriculum and Teaching with Masters of Education in 2016, and I actually started at Marquette in 2017, or 2015, so I was finishing my degree and starting here at the same time. It was terrible first year. It was such a bad idea. Um, but the time that I sort of spent outside of the academy being like a capital A adult and like failing at being a capital A adult, uh, has been really instrumental uh, in finding my place in grad school. We say failing as a capital A adult. <laughs> I mean, do you want to go into that? Or? Sure. Um, so the reason I said I failed is I graduated right after the start of the Great Recession with a BA in history. So it was impossible. And I was working through undergrad. I had a job at two different coffee shops, and it was an overnight CNA to group home. Yeah, so <laughs> I couldn't find work that used the skill sets that I sort of built in um, as an undergrad. Sure. And I couldn't get out of a job, so I needed all three of those. So I was constantly just overworked and super stressed. I had three roommates, like all of the Great Recession underemployed stories. Um, but in addition to that, I was also super bored. 
and I think this is why I failed at, a, at being a, a, a capital A adult. Um, I was debating about law school, and though, because that was sort of how I made my, my Asian mom okay with me switching from a business-focused degree, I actually was going to be an accountant, uh, which is funny because I don't like math, um, to a history major my junior year was to tell my mom I'm going to be a lawyer. All of the research and writing and thinking skills I'm developing will make me a good lawyer. Uh, it still does. I argue really well. Um, and I didn't want to go to law school. I was super burnt out uh, by the end of my BA. I had, because I switched majors, I did not have enough credits to declare history as my major. It was going to be my minor. So I took uh, the University of Washington's on uh, quarters. So year-round, 18 credits. Yeah. By the time I graduated, I was so done with school that the thought of three more years was not, I was not going to do it. Um, I didn't want to go and get my MBA, which I thought about as to build a skill set to start up a firm. Um, and the thought of practicing scared the shit out of me. I did not think I could get up in front of an audience and be like, I am correct. This other person is not correct. I'm more correct. Um, and because I was so bored, I was taking knitting classes, I was reconstructing and deconstructing uh, and writing knitting patterns. I was doing a shit ton of math and geometry to knit and I was constantly knitting and I just was not intellectually stimulated. And one Christmas, my younger brother gave me an 1863 etiquette guide. It was a reprint from Boston about how ladies and gentlemen should behave. And I found out that, I one, I love etiquette guides as historic documents. Mm -hmm. I'm going to write uh, something that deals with etiquette nice. guides. Um, and I realized in that that I want to see how informal prescriptive policy, etiquette guides, standards of behavior that people just sort of internalize, and these formalized reactionary laws and policies um, sort of impact the world. Right. So I didn't want to practice law. I wanted to see how laws and informal structures, exactly. I was going to be a legal historian or some sort of policy historian and how that the world is shaped, internalized, reinforced, reproduced uh, by the people who embody these institutions, whether or not they know it. So it's as simple as now I use how do you know um, I guess, how to dress appropriately for your work. And right. I've asked this of deans all the time. Like, how do you know that you needed to wear a suit every day at work? And the answers range. Someone took them aside in a couple cases. The other few, the ones that I get more often is, I don't know, I just started to. I was like, that's an informal mm -hmm. sort of behavior we internalize. Etiquette guides are the formal sort of written way. And if you look at the differences between what's important to codify in 1860 to 1900 to 1910 to now, even now. The ones now are funny because they have things about how to ghost appropriately. <laughs> um, like what is appropriate text speak? Like how do you set up a date versus a hangout? Right. Um, who pays for gas if you're going to the airport? So it has very things that we consider polite behavior. Um, with that, I don't think I would sh I would shape or be shaped 
to the, the historian than I am now, which sort of looks at this informal structure as well as the policy and to say there there's something that's being internalized by the constituents of the community I'm looking at. So that was a very fortuitous gift then. Oh, I know. <laughs> so did you focus on legal history or American history? I mean, I don't know what kind of program the, the place you got your master's from had. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. um, so I didn't start out as a 19th century historian at all. Right. Um, I came into Marquette as the sort of early Americanist because the program that I came out of in Bowling Green had a couple things that sort of worked with it is I had a faculty member who was really interested in popular culture. Bowling Green is home to the Bradbury archive of pop culture so they have things like penny dime novels and comics. They have I think every comic. That'd be a lot of comics. I used to work at a comic book shop and we yeah. didn't have every comic but we had a lot and it yeah. was um, a sales floor which was probably about 20 foot wide and 80 foot deep and then and a second floor which was the same because it was an old uh, where it was located in the downtown of Paducah it's no longer there but it was an old like gunsmithing shop so the upper floor had all these tools and stuff mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. I had to take out one summer and like a, oh not old-fashioned lathe and all this metalworking stuff and super cool um, but anyway, so in the entire upper floor, that was the back stock, so where we'd go if we yeah, sold out yeah. of something downstairs. And there were many. I can tell you that I read as many as they would let me take out. The first six <laughs> months I was at Bowling Green because I had no friends and I didn't really know what to do. Right. So I would just go every day. And I mean, and I'm not saying an it's, hour it's, it's impossible <laughs> that they do, but that would be a lot of. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they do have. A lot of them, yeah. um, and it was also a former policy. Or, I mean, their, their focus is on policy, right? Um, writ large, sort of as broad as you can make that term, and then very specific, legislative and legal, uh, or judicial, legal, um, <laughs> and other sort of prescriptive, codified stuff. Um, so, my MA advisor, uh, Ruth Herdman who's also a childhood historian, looked at poor codes around children. Mm -hmm. So like very specific legal legislative focus. But in like the 17th or 18th century? She started in the, around 1750, I think, okay. uh, up to early national was okay. her time period. Um, so when I approached her to work with her, I very generally was like, I'm really interested in the legalization around drug and alcohol, because uh, how do you how do you regulate moralistic behavior? Um, and she was like, Well, you're too late for my time. She had me sign a contract, and I sort of shifted back. So I wrote my MA thesis on the intersection of the legal code around sodomy and bestiality laws, um, which are the two unnatural sexual transgressions. So incest, adultery, fornication, masturbation are all natural sexual congresses where they're going to scold you for doing it, but it's not deemed unnatural, unnatural in front of God in the way that sodomy and bestiality are. And we're at in Massachusetts Bay Colony from 1629 to 1699. Yeah, oh yeah. So I came in as early colonialist yeah, yeah, yeah. history, and I had sort of 
proposed when I when I was recruited to say I'll continue this project I think there's something there because without realizing I was doing it I was sort of looking at how fear and anxiety around the metaphysical um, Ref was reflected in the legal constructs of the colonial settlers in this space. So they're so afraid of God's wrath. Mm -hmm. And it's being reinforced by indigenous raids. It's being reinforced by their poor sort of farming choices and famine and desert and conflicts with other colonial settlers that because sodomy and bestiality did not necessarily mean the actual act but what it represented, which was impenitence, impenitence before God. You've completely turned your back to God's sort of grace. And in doing so, you then become a contagion and sin will spread throughout the colony. And if sin spreads throughout the colony, Sodom and Gomorrah will rain hellfire down. Hellfire. Pretty much. So I was doing this emotional history without realizing I was doing an emotional history. Um, However, when I got to Marquette, I realized I did not want to play in the incredibly deep historiographic pool that was New England. I'm sure. also at the wrong institution to do New England history. We're a little far away from the archives. Right. Um, and so like, I, I would not be able to attack the archives in the rich way that you have to yeah. from, compared to someone at Penn or Harvard or Smith or one of the institutions that have been in charge of these archives since the 1600s. Yeah. Um, well, that just makes me, uh, <laughs> leads me to another question, though, and I, and I realize that the answer to this may just be because it was interesting or that was only, <laughs> the only thing available, because me and you started here at the same time. Yep. I was coming in as a master's yep. student while you were coming in as a PhD, and we had a couple of classes together. Yep. We had the, the generic class that everybody had to have, the art and craft mm -hmm, class, mm -hmm. but we also had a, what turned into a directed study on South Africa. Mm -hmm. What attracted you to that class? Because for me, I was coming in as a Middle East North Africa kid, so that that made sense for me to take that, even though it's the same continent, it's not not the same geographic space. Right. But as somebody who, all a majority of well, I can't say a majority because of the way that things are, but who had spent a lot of time in my undergraduate on African history, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. made sense to continue that. What attracted you to that class? So when I first came in uh, as a PhD student, I was asked by our director of graduate studies what I thought my teaching field would be. Given the time period that I'm interested in, predominantly interested in enslavement of African descended peoples is like one of the most fundamental building blocks and yeah. sort of societal structures. So my response was Africa. There's okay. no real reason for me, for the research that I'm interested in doing, to do Latin America. Even with my switch with my dissertation topic geographically in the Mid-Atlantic, while present, they're not uh, in the way, they're not impacting the work that I'm doing in the way that the African diaspora is doing. Sure. Um, and then Maryland itself is situated very particularly within the, the diaspora. And so that's why, because okay. it was the only class that was offered that semester, yeah. and they wanted me to start thinking about my teaching field and the ways in which I could develop the skills to be able to teach, maybe not an African history mm -hmm. course, because I don't think I'm qualified for that, but an African diaspora course. Yeah. Right. Um, and so they're like, okay, if you're going to do that, you have to have a course background 
to justify you saying you can do this. Yeah, and for those of you who are listening who don't know, our university, the way that you qualify for your teaching field is you have to have a course on it at the graduate level and have TA'd the course, and then you develop a lesson plan, a syllabus, and annotating bibliography and all that stuff for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's why. So that was the first of the graduate level courses that I took um, in that I did not actually TA for it. Mm -hmm. So we kind of cribbed a bunch of things together sure. to justify. Yeah, I think that the, <laughs> they say TA, but I think the language is lecture mm -hmm. in the actual handbook. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's been mm -hmm. a while since I looked at So I have a couple lectures in West Civ. Um, I have sat in numerous times on the Latin America course as well as the African American course. And then because of my research, I'm also fairly connected with the diaspora. Sure. So like that made it more okay, I think. Works for us anyway. No, yeah, no, I'm far more comfortable talking about the diaspora than yeah. I am about African history, but that's why I took the course. Okay, uh, an interesting aside, but an aside nonetheless. So let's talk about how your your research focus changed and what it is now, what you've okay, actually yeah. been doing. So uh, the reason it changed is actually because of the class uh, at Marquette. It was Foreign Policy, Race and Gender in American History, which is a seminar by Michael Donahue. And I was in that class with you as well. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure we kind it's a, it's, of started. It's a small place, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had already decided to shift forward. Um, the resources aren't available here for colonial uh, projects. I also realized the reason I was a colonialist was because of my MA advisor. I wanted to work with Ruth, so I shifted because the topic was less important to me than the research questions I wanted to ask. And in doing so, I realized while so much work has been done in New England, less work has been done on the early Chesapeake region, so the Mid-Atlantic, uh, New Jersey, Delaware, South Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Upper Virginia. Mm -hmm. I'm forgetting. Did I say Delaware? Yes, I think you did. Okay, everyone forgets about Delaware. Um, it's Delaware. It's okay. Delaware. Like, people forget that they were a slave hunting state for uh, up until after the Civil War. And so, in this course, um, I was looking at projects specifically on Maryland because, when doing the sort of basic historiography of the area, I realized that Virginia is the model, the historic model, mm -hmm. and Maryland and Delaware and Jersey are used to support the Virginia model uh, when applicable. Or, Maryland, Jersey, and Delaware are used to support Pennsylvania's model. However, Maryland, and I don't know enough about Delaware state history, but Maryland itself doesn't work in that way. Because um, they don't have a stable tobacco crop. They switch pretty early to grain um, because on the sort of side that most people think of Maryland around the Chesapeake Bay doesn't really work for tobacco. Right. Um, the interior is a little better in the Piedmont, but for the most part, they don't see a boom in the way that Virginia does. Um, and then you have the development of religious freedoms, kind of, until the Protestants overthrow the Catholic government in 1689. Um, you also then see starting in about 1800, the largest free black population. And so in this class, I was looking at how the Haitian Revolution impacted Maryland's economy. 
which doesn't sound exciting, but I thought it was. Um, because Maryland at the time was feeding the Caribbean, they were exporting through Baltimore the immense amount of grain that they were producing because, you know, on Haiti and on Jamaica or some of the islands that are completely devoted to a single cash crop, sugar, coffee, um, those sorts of things, they're not feeding their populace. Right. So what happens when the Caribbean explodes in violence to Maryland's um, economy? And in that, I found an order of African and African descendant, Afro-Caribbean and African-American women who, who have ties to the Caribbean, who established a school for non-white girls. Mm -hmm. They explicitly say it in their order's rules. They explicitly say this is what they're going to do. And the archivist Sharon was kind enough to send me the annals, the official recording. And I got it too late for the class. And my paper for that class is actually pretty terrible. Um, but <laughs> so in, in that class, it was, it was fascinating because all I could think of is Maryland is a slaveholding state. They're actively enslaving African descendant people. Okay, yeah, Baltimore has a large free black population, but people from free states, Ohio, um, Pennsylvania, and then slave, other slaveholding states, Virginia, the DC area, um, I think in the early years, someone as far back as like the Ca uh, Carolinas, mm -hmm. are sending their daughters to Baltimore for an education. And I could not figure out why. And they're not white daughters. Non-white daughters, yes. yes. So it's an African uh, descendant order of women religious who are educating African descendant black and brown girls. Some are enslaved, maybe. <laughs> it's hard to tell because in the record it says servant. Yeah. So what does that mean? Right. And then you also have the sort of Catholic tradition of people freeing enslaved peoples. Um, for educational purposes, or a religious sort of owning and safe peoples like Georgetown's Jesuits. Um, so, like, how does that fit? But I could not wrap my head around why people would send their daughters to a slaveholding state, which the the risk of them being disappeared is really high. So, in my dissertation seminar with my dissertation advisor, I sort of explored that. And it then turned into all of the things that I'm interested in are how policy intersects with how people figure out they how they belong in society. Right. And I've always been also fascinated by what makes things masculine or feminine. So irrespective of biological sex, um, but how do we deem things as masculine? How do we deem things feminine? Uh, because there was a professor of the revolution who looked at desertion and traitors as a gendered history of the Revolutionary War. And he said that it didn't matter the sex of the individual doing the action. It was a feminine trait. Mm -hmm. So then I was like, but you learned that. How do you learn that? Which are all questions rooted in the history of childhood. Um, so how do you learn what is expected behavior for you, given the space that you accommodate? How do you um, learn you know, what is, what markers, your race, your gender, socioeconomic class, your class in society, so what group do you belong to, your age, your religion, how, how do you figure and negotiate that space? Particularly when Baltimore is so fluid, 
yeah. and the, the historic categories that we've built don't work in this one urban environment. Okay, well before we go on, let me <laughs> ask a couple of questions yeah. for, for my own clarity. So this is taking place, the, the opening of this school and the importation of these girls to this school is after the Haitian Revolution. It starts in 1828. So it's before the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian Revolution no, starts in 1791. Yeah, right. So it is <laughs> well past it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so they informally, the, the women involved, so Mother Mary Lang, uh, whose secular name I don't remember, but Mother Mary Lang was informally educating girls in her home. And in 1828, they formalize it, mm -hmm. get papal approval in 1833. So the Pope is saying, this is a good thing. They become a religious order. They build um, a half cloistered nunnery around the school. Um, the women who are nuns are educators. So like they're, they're building the infrastructure sure. around what was largely informal and had always been informal in Baltimore. Um, so the first, not really the first school, but the, the established schools in Baltimore City. In Maryland, unlike the other slaveholding states, you don't see a law prohibiting the education of African-descended peoples. Um, so if the, the big case is Frederick Douglass learning how to read and write from his mistress, his, his wife's owner, the owner's wife. Right. Um, that's not illegal. It was frowned upon, but there was no explicit law in the way that you see in Virginia or, or Alabama or sort of the other deep south states. They were kind of, don't do it, but nah, we won't go out of our way to destroy religious institutions or educational spaces. Well, and at the time that this was and the, the reason that I asked that question, because mm -hmm. I was wondering how the impact of mm -hmm. the refugees coming over from the Haitian Revolution would have impacted this, but this is after that, so that doesn't... They actually have ties to the Afro-Caribbean community in Baltimore, and mm -hmm. the first couple of years of the order and of school success rests upon the Afro-Caribbean Haitian refugee community in Baltimore. So Baltimore is a secondary city for people to uh, immigrate to after the war. Mm -hmm. So majority of the refugees go to Philadelphia because they are guaranteed freedom. When you look at Baltimore, there's 1,500 approximately uh, total immigrants. If I were, That number seems low. I feel like it's higher. Maybe it's, I'll have to double check. But they immigrate to Baltimore and the enslaved population comes with their owners. Right. And they are freed in, in a bunch of different ways, but you see sort of the Afro-Caribbean order supporting the school and, and donating money for scholarships so girls can go without paying the fee. Mm -hmm. um, the supervising priest, Father, I'm gonna butcher his name because it's French, Jobert. Mean? Yeah, we're gonna, that's correct. Um, he is a French priest in the Sulpine Order, who was in Haiti and left during the, the beginning parts of the revolution. Mm -hmm. And there are some conflicting reports about Mother Mary Lang, um, but she's from the Caribbean, probably went to New Orleans or some other southern, I think 
Orleans, New Orleans, and then got to Baltimore via yeah. there. So there's still connection to. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know for sure um, because a, a good number could have gone to Charleston, but I seem to recall that a lot of the, the refugees who, who fled Haiti wound up in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a secondary location, yeah. um, but there was already an Afro-Catholic, Afro-Caribbean community right. prior to the revolution. So it just sort of that that chain migration pulled people specifically to the city. Yeah. Well, then, in the time that this is developing, that is also somewhat, though not by a lot, it doesn't sound like, before the um, second Middle Passage. Mm -hmm. So did, does that play into why they were willing to send them that, even though it was a slave state, the, the, the second Middle Passage hadn't happened, so yeah. slavery hadn't ramped back up in America right, right. to this level. So that's a really good question and I'm not entirely sure, but I do know that the number of girls from outside of Maryland accelerates during a second middle passage. Okay. Um, so like an 18, and it, it's, it's also following in, in particular the School for Colored Girls, which is established in 1820, I feel like I should say that. It's renamed after the war to the St. Francis Academy for Colored Girls, and then for Colored Girls is dropped after 1900 or 1890, somewhere, somewhere around the turn of the century, um, follows missions. So uh, the sisters set up a mission in Missouri and then all of a sudden they start getting a bunch of girls going to the Motherhouse School in 1850 after the Missouri yeah. um, convent. The same with when they go to New Orleans and Philadelphia and they have a mission in D.C. They go to the Caribbean and you start seeing girls from Puerto Rico specifically um, coming out. And then there's random cases where like a girl will identify as being from Peru. Yeah. And well, that, those are cases all after the Civil War, but starting in around 1850, you see a much wider geographic range where girls are coming from California. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so this is why it's weird, mm -hmm. and where I've talked to uh, Catholic and religious historians, and they think it is the spiritual health as well as the educational health, and it is the school to go to. It's the first. Um, it's also relatively affordable, relatively. Um, and the only other school would be the one in New Orleans that gets established in 1847. But that's in the Deep South. Yeah. yeah so. Oh, another right. ball of ads. Um, so like they're much, I feel like parents are much more willing to send their daughters to an upper South school in which Baltimore also has the largest free black population prior to the Civil War as well. Um, which is one of the reasons why I'm like, Baltimore is weird, and it just doesn't work. Um, so like, wonderful city though. I love oh no, I do too. I want to move there so bad. Um, but by 1831, free people of color outnumber in the enslaved population in Baltimore City, um, and by the Civil War, one half of the total Black and African descended population um, in the city was. Yeah, and then you also get this, because it's an urban space, uh, fluid enslavement, where, where African descended people are willingly entering term slavery. Mm. 
they are wage slaves. They're working in industry and factories instead of on plantations and farms. And the boundaries, because there is a surplus, is so blurry that you may be nominally enslaved, but not in practice. You kept your wages, you did all these things. Um, Seth Rockman in Scraping By sort of has a really good sort of snapshot of what Annabelle in Baltimore looks like with the pawning and the and the sort of labor that they're doing. It's so fluid that you could not ever really tell who's free or who's not free, um, given how fluid the entire, that's how, that's how, why Frederick Douglass is able to disappear. Right. Yeah. Um, because they don't check in the same way other cities do. And then in that, because you get half of the, the entire state's population is free. Almost 90% in the city are free. Roughly, those are really rough approximations. Um, and it's the largest population of free black individuals that you get advocacy that you don't see in other cities until mm -hmm. after the Civil War in the city. So they're petitioning for their education and my you know, things that I'm interested in. Um, which I guess I've actually never said what my dissertation's about. Not yet. That's okay. We're getting there. <laughs> okay. Um, which, um, so they petition the school board and the wow. city government. They petition for their freedom. They're bringing suits in court. They're suing for their freedom. And in some cases, they are successful. So it, it situates this advocacy in a really interesting way that makes everything that we know about sort of urban enslavement kind of go, huh. Um, Martha S. Jones just wrote a book called Birthright Citizens about how Maryland and Baltimore and specifically non-white freed population sort of went, hmm, there's no law telling me I can't do this thing. Right. So I'm gonna do this thing. Yeah, and that's, so I'm wondering, I mean, we can have the discussion, and we will have the discussion about Baltimore being part of the South, and have, Maryland being part of the South. I uh, have strong opinions about uh, that. <laughs> I know you do. Um, but is it because of its unique ge geography? Because at the worst, it's a border state. Right, yeah. And so that puts it in the, the, the battle between the abolitionist movements yes. and the desire to extend freedom versus the desire for the southern half to extend slavery and mm -hmm. really just cut down on mm -hmm. any avenue of escape. Um, that is a very distinct battleground. Right. And I don't know, and it could just be a, a, a lacuna in my own personal knowledge of this time period of any other city in the nation at the time that was undergoing something similar. I mean, I guess you could make a case for New Orleans, but that would have happened earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it wouldn't have been going on at this time. No. So Baltimore is unique in that. Okay. Um, because it's not a majority black city. It's not Savannah, it's not Richmond, it's not even New Orleans. It's also poorer, um, the, the African descendant population is poorer in both immediate wealth and land wealth than New York and Philadelphia. But 
there's more of them right. in the city. And it's one of those, like, even in the 1900s, when you look, not the 1900s, after the Civil War, when you look at the first wave of Great migrations, they're going to cities like Baltimore. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just a confluence of its geographic location. It is a hundred and something miles away from freedom. Is that the distance? I think that's the distance between Baltimore and Philadelphia. It's not far. Yeah, I mean, if it's approximately that, <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, like, when I took the train, it was only an hour and a half. <laughs> it between, makes it go super fast. <laughs> the two cities. Not in America. So, um, it's also, like, an, a little under an hour to get from Baltimore to, to D.C. I did that a lot. Um, yeah. But it's... Baltimore, yeah, Baltimore's just weird, and it doesn't work, and I don't know of any city during the antebellum period, mm -hmm. and the sort of pre-civil, early national pre-civil war, um, where it works in the same way, where you see um, over 50% of the, the free population literate yeah. um, over the age of 12, so like this is also including adults. Um, but where, and obviously literacy is nebulously defined because they're not reading and writing. It might, it might just be reading, right. um, that sort of stuff. But they're able to engage with letters in some way. They're able to, to engage with contract and have ownership of an agency over their, their labor in ways that you don't see in other cities. And I just have to keep returning to in 1839, 1844, we are paying property taxes to help pay for this school our children are barred from. We don't want to do that. Doesn't go anywhere. Then the next one is, okay, why don't you take the money and exempt us? Because we're paying for tuition at these itinerant schools. So um, in 1807, you see the establishment of the, oh, I'm gonna, Make sure I get the name of this right so I don't get in trouble. Um, the Daniel Cocker founded the Bethel Charity School mm -hmm. in 1807. William Watkins takes over Bethel after Cocker migrates to Liberia to help the American Colonization Society establish a colony there. So, like, there are lots of different um, things. And then Watkins combines it with the Sharp Street Corner School in the 1820s. And that stays open until uh, the 1850s when William Watkins and his family, there are two William Watkins, so I'm not sure, oh God bless them and their names. Um, Watkins moves to Toronto during okay. this time. And so like for that time period that this, the the black Catholic boarding school and looking at is flourishing. There's also this other system of education for other religious denominations. And 
they're all sending their children there. Or you have Sabbath or Sunday schools, which are rudimentary reading and writing, um, sometimes basic arithmetic. And none of that is destroyed in the way that you see in like New Haven, mm -hmm. where they pull a school down with children still inside it. Yeah, oh yeah, Hillary Moss. Oh God, there are also two Hillarys that do religious, uh, educational history. Hillary Green and Hillary Moss. I'm pretty sure Hillary Moss is the one who does the antebellum stuff. She did case studies in Boston, New Haven, and Baltimore. Um, so you you see this fluidity, and I lost my point. Well, I think now <laughs> would be a good time. And you've hinted around it quite a bit. Um, and people who have the benefit of knowing how to read and actually read the descriptions of episodes before they, <laughs> they listen will know. But for those who, who just jump into these things, and God bless you, and thank you for listening. Um, Let's talk about what your dissertation actually is, because you've talked a lot about right you around know, it. Around it, you've talked about these communities of uh, free blacks mm -hmm. during the antebellum period, and then the African-descended peoples afterward. You've talked about these religious orders, and you've talked about education. Mm -hmm. So smushing it all yeah. together. So my dissertation looks at the education of. Uh, black and brown girls from 1844 to 1904 in Baltimore City to sort of figure out how white administrators envisioned a future for these children. So how do these girls learn or are presented with what black parents, white administrators envision the purpose of their education? So it's actually not a history of uh, education. Per se. Right, it's a history of schooling. So I read a lot of textbooks, I read a lot of curricular theory, and this is why I think uh, the fact that I have an education degree in curriculum, I never thought I would have to read like Horace Mann again or any sort of the early educational theorists, and I'm citing them now. Right. <laughs> and sort of childhood development, and sort of all of the things that I've talked about, about how do you learn your place, how does policy, formal policy, and schools are so insanely bound by a multitude of different city, municipal, county, state, and then at the post-war period, federal yeah. laws um, impact the decision to then present the material to the child. So is that then the difference when you, because you said this is a more of a history of mm -hmm. schooling than mm -hmm. it is education. So it's not so much about what they're being it's not the taught. building, it's about what they're being taught, okay, so, well, and that's the difference. So okay. a history of education often is how does education get formalized, particularly in the 19th century. So you're looking at... So that's um, more of a curricular development kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at more the socialized aspect of the yes. actual attending the school. It's also curricular. Oh, okay. Um, so like for, for the history of education, it's when did the school get built? Okay. Uh, how did you know the community respond to it? who was behind the building of the institution. And there's a lot about institutionalization. So the developments of school boards, um, you know, schooling for Jim Crow looks at funding models. Mm -hmm. So it's more the organizational and institutional. And what I'm trying to get at is sort of childhood. How is the material presented? And then what can we learn about American childhood? So the age range I'm looking at is 6 to 21, is identified as school age in Baltimore. And then how the material that they're being presented says something about the importance of education for children. 
And so that's kind of the difference. I do a lot of history of education, but the questions that I ask are more about how and why they're being taught and for what purpose they're being taught. So incorporating the element of childhood, because mm -hmm. you're looking at children, mm -hmm. so I mean that, that is natural and uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I happen to know because I go to this university <laughs> here, um, your supervisor is yeah. one of the leading scholars yes. in childhood history. Yes. Um, he is a grand poobah, and I say that to his face all the time. <laughs> I'm sure he just reacts in a very specific way. <laughs> um, but, but where I was going with that is, this is a time of a lot of change. Mm -hmm. Not only do you have, mm -hmm. I mean, technically you're doing it in the aftermath of the war. I actually go through the Civil War. Oh, you do? You yeah. start before the war? Yes, I start in You 18 said that. Because you said 1848. Yeah. No, that's okay. Um, and so the reason I did that is, as someone who's fascinated by early America, uh -huh. I really didn't want to go yeah. past the Civil I fought it. Oh my God, did I fight it. Um, but I was awarded an exploratory Casper research grant through the department and went to the archive because in my brain, I was like, I'm going to look at this one religious school in Baltimore and yeah. hmm, I'm going to look at the other one in New Orleans and do a comparative analysis of what the Upper South's religious community and the Lower South's religious community does. That can be book two. Oh, I, uh, no, I already have a plan for book two. <laughs> um, and then I got to Baltimore and realized that public school sort of records had not been mined in the way that I would want to, as well as religious education is often not put in conversation with secular education. Right. They're being parallel developed and parallel institution institutionalized at the mm -hmm. same time. So, okay, we want to put these two types of schools together. And when you read the rationale for educating children and then children of, of color in the antebellum, the rationale sounds a whole lot like the rationale after the Civil War. But you get this bifurcation around the Civil War in education history. So, for example, you get antebellum education going from the early national, so 1870 with the rise of the common school in Massachusetts to 1861. And then stuff will pick up or the development of, or the reconstruction for reading, writing, and arithmetic or something mm -hmm. will start in 1866 or 1867 to yeah. like 1890, where they leave out Baltimore. But in my source base, the public school system doesn't shut down. The School for Colored Girls doesn't shut down. The only reference that I have in the annals is a nun writing, a sister writing, that the because Baltimore is occupied, they can't get supplies in for the railroad tracks, so they have to keep the girls. It's the only mention for the Civil War. God love an unflappable nun. <laughs> right. And, and they're in, uh, the original mother house is in, I mean, it's, pretty not quite near the water but it's real close to where downtown is yeah. I walk by it when I'm in Baltimore regularly and you're just like Federal Hill is not that far Federal Hill is in in Baltimore where the troops were during the Civil War exactly. after 1861 when Lincoln sends sends the troop into Baltimore and that's all they say so they're continuing school mm -hmm. there is no major disruption and while Baltimore has to rewrite its state constitution to remove reference to enslaved peoples in 1864 and then again in 1867, because of the fluidity, the rationale doesn't change. Okay. And that was something 
that I picked up pretty quickly. And then also sort of being with someone who has built, I mean, largely uh, Dr. James Martin is childhood history. He's done, I mean, he's one of the founders of the society. He's been the president and the editor of the journal for like ever. When he didn't show up to a conference, everyone asked me if he was going to retire soon. Um, and then they were all just like, no, he has to stay around. I'm like, he is old. <laughs> also, I'm not a skipper. I don't know. Right, he right. didn't want to fly to Australia. Um, but he had, had sort of, when I, when I you know, take my annals and go, I want to study the children. I don't care what the nuns are doing, sort of. Because yeah. lots, of, lots of work has been done on this order. Um, entire, lots of scholars, well, not lots. Some scholarship has been done, predominantly by Diane Batsmaro, about the order. But I was much more interested in the children. And one of the things that Dr. Martin had mentioned is the history of childhood is often more about continuity than it is change. Mm -hmm. And that you see layers getting added on to the history of childhood, but fundamentally, things are very similar. And there are themes that get developed. And we'll add things and we'll take some layers away, but it's, it's far more about continuity. I joke all the time that I'll be reading these documents from the 1880s or the 1860s, and I'm pretty sure I read some to you, where I'm like, this could have been written yesterday. Yeah. And if it wasn't in passive voice and it didn't have as many dependent run-on clauses, it absolutely would be an op-ed from the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Atlantic about the state of education in sure. the US. Particularly when you start getting into the, the conversations around poor children do the crimes and we need to stop them from doing the crimes and is industrial education where children should be funneled into, or the certain class should be funneled into. Yeah. Um, so it very much then turns into the STEM liberal arts debate now. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, just look at your Facebook feeds and you know, <laughs> ignore the coronavirus stuff and you'll see some stuff on trade schools versus mm -hmm. universities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what I was actually, the question that I wanted to ask is, I, I found that range of childhood that you mentioned from age six to age 21, or maybe that was just schooling, so maybe not all of that is considered childhood. No, no. Um, because I think that that is very interesting, because the only th work that I've ever done with childhood was, not surprisingly, from a seminar mm -hmm. that Dr. Martin was running, um, and it was looking at child soldiers, and yeah. you see the push to kind of but this is all 20th century stuff. I mean, so war, you're, you're is, war is one of the themes. Right, yeah, well, yeah war is war. <laughs> and, well, that was actually the theme of the seminar. But just, so in defining a child soldier, there was a push to internationalize mm -hmm. what it means to be a child mm -hmm. because you have communities or cultures in which people cease being a child at yeah. puberty or yeah. sometimes a little bit before based on various factors. And so I was wondering how this is a school for people of color mm -hmm. that starts off during a time of mass enslavement of people mm -hmm. of color. What was that conception of childhood for them? Oh, this. so that's a really good and really in-depth question. <laughs> um, so enslaved childhood looks incredibly different. Mm -hmm. um, very little work has been done on freed uh, children of color during this time period. Um, Anna May Doon has done some work, 
um, but it also tends to be literary focused and I don't necessarily have that answer for the antebellum sure. and the reason I have the age range of 6 to 21 is because when Baltimore City Public Schools opens or sort of incorporates the colored public school system that's the age range that they will accept for education Gotcha. Yeah, so it's less about what does childhood look like in the time period uh -huh. versus for me, because also yeah. in the 1850s you start getting conceptions of emotional modern childhood for upper class elite children, more so girls than boys, and that sort of trickles down in a bunch of different ways, um, given socioeconomic markers, etc. Um, but then it also gets into like how do you define age and the abstraction around age? Is it relative age? Is it merit right. age? Is it biologic age? Is it, those are the three that I can think of, yeah. but Corrine Fields and Nicholas Stewart have like six different categories of how age is used. Um, oh, one's generational. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's trying to figure that out. And for my purposes, I said Baltimore City defines school age as six to 21. This is before age-based education, uh -huh. so it's merit. Oh, okay. Yes. So, um, and, and in the school, in the, the private schools, it's also merit. And I haven't seen an explicit, we will not accept children after this age. Yeah. Um, or they'll go to an evening adult school or something like that. I, have, I also haven't touched those sources in the six, seven months. I could be wrong, um, knee-deep in the public school stuff, and they're very explicit in that if you're within that, you go to the public school system, you go to the primary school for, for non-white children. If you're over the age of 21, you go to an adult evening school. Um, and then in 1890, they set up half schools for people on that cusp. Okay. Um, and those are really, really broad. And yeah. they start tracking the ages of students going to what school. So, and then until 1880, they don't open up anything, uh, a high school. So then it's like, what does high school age? What does grammar age? What does primary age look like? And they're really broad categories because to pass on to the next level, you have to take an exam. So if you don't pass the examination, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're gonna stay in that grade. Okay. Um, so in a range of, of students in a classroom, which the number, I love talking to people about post-bellum education, because it's like that one in schoolhouse is only in rural spaces. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. like you, you have this one principal teacher with a classroom of like 60 students, all by themselves, <laughs> with like an assistant teacher maybe. Um, 60, 70 students, there are a lot of conversations around class, appropriate class size, and they want to aim towards like 20. <laughs> I know, like I said, Best practice, yeah. <laughs> it sounds exactly the same. It's <laughs> like, how big is the lecture size? <laughs> um, and, and so like you'll get a, a range of like an eight-year-old in class with an 11-year-old in class with a 14-year-old. Um, they do, in the 1870s, put restrictions so that you have to be older than six to go to a primary school you have to be younger than 14. to go to high school you cannot be younger than 14. Mm -hmm. and then grammar i think is you have to be older than eight okay um i think so that like they're acknowledging varying child development but like you can stay in high school until you're 21 sort of thing so 
but then it, the high school is called Baltimore City College, so it's also not quite collegiate education, more like community college, to then feed into Hopkins. Right. Um, and that tends to be 1819 when John Hopkins University is established, or when Morgan State University is established in Baltimore City, it's HBCU. So like it gets really fuzzy depending on what it is. And so it's less about, or my work is less about how it develops, mm -hmm and more about why do they develop sure. it the way they do. So there's a lot of like, we're teaching girls domestic economy. We're teaching them to be mothers, wives, and domestic servants. Um, we're teaching them how to be citizens, as citizenship is defined for these women. Um, they're teaching them how not to do the crimes. <laughs> um, and be, you know, sort of lacking in the dens of vice and inequity and, and and all of those sorts of things. Um, citizenship, not do the crimes, domestic economy, and then like general, here's content knowledge, like we think you should do this. We should, we envision that you will need to know how to write clearly, and here's the, the knowledge we think you, student, will need. So just a, a very general education. Mm -hmm. it's, it's also liberal arts, too. Okay. Um, so they don't, open an industrial school until well after Hampton Institute in Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, nor do they have industrial education built into the public school system. It's history. A lot of grammar. So much grammar. <laughs> I have to learn how to diagram sentences again. Um, uh, I've never learned. It's really hard. Because I didn't learn either. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, they taught it in my school system, but for one year, um, I left the Kentucky school system and moved to the Tennessee school system, and that was the year they taught it. And so <laughs> when I came back, everybody else had already learned yeah, it. And yeah. I was just like, oh, whatever. We never, they never did it again. So I was like, oh, okay. So actually, this is going to be really funny. So when I went to elementary school, which is roughly primary school in the same, mm -hmm. same time period, um, they were switching to phonics learning for grammar in the 1880s which is where I am now in my public school records sort of reading the school board reports to the, to the mayor and city council they're talking about a shift from the traditional grammar instruction of diagram and reproducing and diction and, and all these really formulaic memorization sort of industrialized education to yeah. learning on phonics and sounding out words and knowing the meaning of the word in context of a sentence instead of just in isolation because they found that students could spell and understand a word in isolation but you put it in a sentence and they don't understand it and I'm like so all of the conversation about the switch around phonics in the 18 or in the night oh my god in the 1980s huh yeah and they're also talking about object lessons and materiality in classrooms. And it's like, oh, the thing that their you know, best practices are now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which I don't know if this makes me a better instructor, if it just makes me a really pedantic, well, actually, <laughs> instructor. <laughs> Uh, my dad doesn't like it because they'll mention something and I'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, we were doing that in 1870. And so like this thing that you said about, you know, it you know, that being a new thing isn't actually a yeah. new thing, dad. Very few new things. Education, <laughs> um, it sounds like. Uh, my question about this, and this might be a completely unfair question, so I apologize <laughs> ahead of time. 
is is that an attempt to colonize the language in that uh, attacking um, newly immigrant communities? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Um, you see, I could just say my favorite thing that I found at NARA, um, or at the National Archives and Records Administration Building in DC. Con the 53rd Congress had a debate, an almost fist fight, over spelling. <laughs> um, for that reason, yeah. they're sort of debating the appropriate spelling of certain words, how to emphasize the Americanization of things, um, how to make American its own sort of English vernacular. Um, yep, and they're bringing in experts from the University of Chicago, who's a linguist, who get the name, but he is trying to to sort of promote his own way of spelling. Yeah. It's also the linguistic language. So instead of using Arabic letters, you use the, the indicators to pronounce it correctly. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it's called, but it's like the phonetic breakdown of letters versus the, the Arabic um, letters. Is that what it's, the ABCD is Arabic or is that just numbers? Um, I think that's Latin letters and Arabic numbers, but I, I could be wrong. I don't, mm, I don't know off the top of my head. I feel so like when I think Arabic, I think of the script. script they completely the, different. Yeah. Right, and I was like, no, I know it's Arabic numbers, but I don't know if it's the alphabet. It might be Latin. doesn't right. matter. Historians don't know everything. Um, so he's sort of promoting this, and then they have a conversation about should they accept it, should they not accept it, how much cost would it be? And they start incorporating this. What about the people? So it's very similar to the 1970s debates around metric yeah. and uh, imperial measurements. And they get incredibly heated. Obviously, they don't adopt it um, because it would fundamentally change sort of how things are. But you do see phonetic guides showing up on how to pronounce certain words right. um, and how to pronounce them correctly as an American. Um, they don't have, as far as I can tell, a wide number of foreign-born students, you know, quote-unquote foreign-born students in the school system because they establish within the public school system in Baltimore an English and German bilingual school. Uh, okay. um, so I think there's also that component as well. Um, and in the Catholic school system, they're, they're doing instruction in French and in English. So I, th I think because of the internationality of the city, yeah. it's less of a big deal. But I mean, that's a really good point because they don't have an indigenous population at the time. Um, they do have German, Jewish, some Asian from Japan, um, Irish, less so than Baltimore, uh, not Baltimore, Boston, because Baltimore is the seat of Southern Catholicism. And the, so there is an immigrant population, but it's le I haven't seen that we have to sort of Americanize these children. The assumption is they're natural born. Mm -hmm. um, and not quite citizens, because Maryland doesn't fully ration, uh, ration, rationize, ratify, <laughs> oh my 
my god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Ratify the 14th Amendment into law into the 20th century so they're only beholden at the federal level. I haven't quite seen those those conversations around Americanisms that I thought, but it's, I'm sure once no, I get into the eight, the late 1890s, that's yeah. going to shift. Oh, certainly. Well, we've been talking for a little bit over an hour at this point. Um, so, <laughs> sorry. Oh, no, it's perfectly fine. That, that's actually what I like, and this was went very smoothly. There's still all kinds of things we could talk about, which just means I can have you back. But I did want to, we, we teased something earlier. So I, I want us to have this conversation and it's something that um, will hopefully be fairly lighthearted to, to close this off. And that is the debate on whether Maryland or Baltimore is Southern. It's absolutely Southern. Um, wholeheartedly, absolutely. It's a time period I look at, it is a Southern state. When it gets into the 20th century, I can understand some of the fluidity, um, especially as Baltimore deindustrialized very similarly to the Great Lake Rust Belt area. I will grant them that, <laughs> but it is a state rooted in Southern antecedents, and to say it's not Southern is ignoring a large part of its history, that sort of cultural ramification. Um, and in, I, <laughs> I did a little bit of poking around on, on this to see what the other population of not historians think. Because even historians sort of argue about this, but it's never formally reconstructed. It is a slave holding state. Um, however, because Maryland, much like Missouri, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Delaware, because people forget about Delaware, um, they, they never formally seed and joined the Confederacy, um, so they were never federally reconstructed. However, they still had to do all of the things yeah. around their state constitution, their institutions, all of those things to, to remove um, the enslavement of African descended people from their laws. So they are doing the same thing that places like Virginia and, and Alabama and Mississippi are doing. Um, in addition to that, because there were no troops and no oversight from the federal department, uh, it wouldn't, let me rephrase, the reason Maryland does not cede in 18, um, for, the, for the Confederacy is because in 1861, after the Pratt Street Riot, which is the first bloodshed of the Civil War, Lincoln sends federal troops into, the, into Baltimore City and then imprisons leaders, inciting the riots at Fort McHenry, the place where we get our national anthem for the duration of the Civil War. So like even in newspapers at the time, so my favorite example is in the Catholic Mirror, which is the Baltimore Archdiocese newspaper, front page in this time, almost every week, the treason bill, should we secede? Like in the Catholic newspaper, and they're constantly debating it. They never do because they're federally occupied Lincoln did not want to lose his access to D.C., but Baltimore in particular is incredibly important. That's where the first assassination trip against uh, Lincoln with the Pinkerton men is in the city. Um, so you see uh, a bifurcation in the state itself, where the north and the west, which is where it's around Chesapeake, is more northern, quote-unquote, inclined. The east the west, wait a minute, shit. So the north and the east around Chesapeake, I need a map. I'm gesticulating wildly with my hands. Um, 
are more inclined to the north, and then the little skinny bit of Maryland in uh -huh. the Piedmont into the east that touches up against West Virginia, you see almost all of that send troops down to the Confederacy. So there's this really wide split um, along sort of rural urban. Yeah, I, th I think you see a similar thing in some other states. Um, as I've mentioned on a couple other episodes, Western Kentucky, the region of Kentucky that I'm from, even though Kentucky remains neutral throughout the war, they attempt to secede to join the, the mm -hmm. Confederacy. Mm -hmm. There's a part in eastern Tennessee that attempts to secede from Tennessee and join the Union. So that is not that uncommon. I do think that it is interesting what has become Southern since then, because but what has become mm -hmm. Southern since then is very heavily based on membership in the Confederacy or a sense of brotherly allegiance. Because Kentucky didn't join, but they and I consider Kentucky Southern, having lived there most of my life. Right. Um, but I, Kentucky also forgot that it wasn't in the Confederacy. <laughs> well, and this is what I find to be particularly interesting. So when I do research in in Baltimore. And I, I stay at hostels to sort of keep costs down, but I also like to talk to people about their history. And a majority of them who, who are not from Maryland have zero idea Maryland is not the South because it's south of the Mason-Dixon line. Maryland's the reason why we have the Mason-Dixon line. Well, Lord Baltimore and Lord Penn complaining a lot and then starting a war and then suing each other over the, the northern boundary I like that war was before a lawsuit. It's like, oh, let's well, fight a war about this, then we'll sue each other. Well, <laughs> the only reason that they even started suing each other is because the king was like, stop it, don't have this war anymore. And then Lord Baltimore and Lord Penn were like, but this border is wrong. So they just kept suing each other. And then the king was like, stop it. I'm going to send the best <laughs> surveyors so that you cannot complain about this border anymore. Right. They stop, but then Maryland starts to complain with Virginia about the Potomac <laughs> and whether or not that's the border of the state. The last lawsuit was in 2003, and the best part about the Maryland-Virginia border dispute is when it gets to the Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court, the Supreme Court goes, we already adjudicated this in 1888. Stop it. <laughs> stop doing this. Um, but that's an aside. Anyways, so it's south of the Mason-Dixon line. Maryland is the reason why, Maryland in part, is the reason why we have Mason-Dixon line. Its entire institution and how it was founded as a colony is based upon the enslavement of black and brown, indigenous, and African-descendant peoples. Mm -hmm. Its entire economy is until the, I'm going to say it, until the 1970s is around the um, economic exploitation of African-descended peoples. Um, it does not, the state does not ratify the 14th and 15th amendments until the 18, or until the 1900s. So it Though beholden to when the feds pass it in 1869, um, the 14th Amendment in Maryland's state constitution is not passed until 1959, after it was rejected in 1867. And it doesn't pass the 15th Amendment, which is African American men can vote, until 1973. The only other states to not ratify um, before Maryland does this are Kentucky and Tennessee for the 15th yep. and California by a day. Like California only beats up Maryland by a day <laughs> and then Kentucky for the 14th. 
So like they're very adhering to this. Um, so because of that, and, and I mean like the, the cultural memory of people from Maryland are, are so wedded to being part of the Confederacy. So for example, in 1999, a group of Confederate sons or something adjacent brought suit against the state of Maryland because the state of Maryland wanted to remove the option of having the Confederate flag on license plates. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> In 1999. And then they won. So you could still get it. And the state was like, we'll pay for you to get your new license. You'll still have this same number. We'll pay for your registration for that year. We'll send you whatever plates that you want. Facilitating all of this. They bring suit and says no. And the report is insane. Because the Oh, oh my God, it's, I can't, I don't want to touch Confederate monuments and Confederate memory in a border state. I have a friend who's doing that, bless her. Um, but it's just like, they're so, the evidence that they use counters the point that they're trying to make. Yeah. Like constantly, like I cannot get behind it and I don't get it. <laughs> but they, and so like, I, I want to say in 2015 was the last time where they actually just got rid of, you couldn't get a Confederate flag on your license plate anymore overnight uh, in 2017 after Charleston, the mayor of Baltimore removed four statues. Mm -hmm. So um, I have, I actually saw three of the four. I didn't get to see the one that I really wanted to see because I couldn't figure out where it was. Uh, so I'm a little salty, I'll never get to see it. Um, but it's, they removed the Jackson and Lee Monument in Wyman Park. It's right by the entrance of John Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's real predominant. Yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, I have a selfie of me being like, what is this? <laughs> like, you can see the, like, Hopkins sign in the background. Um, and then, like, because they're on the side of, they're opposite sides of the road. But it's very much, like, it's right there. Yeah. Uh, Jackson and Lee have no context to Maryland whatsoever. Um, the other statue they removed was Roger B. Tanney. He was the one who wrote the majority decision in uh, Dred Scott. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so in Mount Vernon, the neighborhood is the Washington Monument. It is the, uh, it predates the one in DC. They're very proud. Uh, but it's shaped like a cross and in the center is Washington and right next to it was, was Tanney. Uh, there's something I need to show you, so <laughs> forgive the clicking. Um, and while you're doing that, I'll keep talking. Yes. And then they have a Confederate ladies monument, and then they had soldiers and sailor Confederate statues were the four that were removed. Um, and there's Confederate iconography on a bunch of different stuff. And because of that, where it's like it's that that Southern identity is rooted and. All of the things when people talk about the South, sweet tea, barbecue, rural spaces, plantation ownership, is a very white, very rural in interpretation of what it means to be the South. And I'm sorry, sweet tea is gross. No, it's not. Uh, yes, I, it I is. Will, I will die on that hill. <laughs> sweet tea is like my blood, ma'am. Um, and so, but you do have scholars, sort of Barbara Fields' first book is Slavery and Freedom on the Middle Ground, specifically about Maryland. You have R.J. Bruger, whose Middle Temper Bit is about Maryland is the middle ground, not southern, not northern, but because of how wedded it is to the institution of black inferiority, I argue it still is. And ignoring that ignores the fundamental history of the state. 
in a way that a lot of people want to do. Yeah. Because it also removes urban spaces as an understanding of the South. So you see the same conversation of Atlanta's not really Southern because it's rural. You see it around Savannah. You see it around uh, Richmond, Maryland, uh, D.C., and Baltimore. Get it? D.C. had a slave market. But we're going to say that's not Southern? And I, I get, like, we also forgive the slave markets in Rhode Island. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't, I don't think that having a slave market necessarily makes you Southern, because that makes it sound like slavery is just, just the South. Oh, or, no, or, it's not. It's the entire, entire countries. But it's, when I think about it, um, I just don't think it's Northern. So one of the things that I found, and that I have talked to Rob Smith sort of, both of our committee members and our bosses at Curdo, Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach. It's the southern, it's the north, northernmost southern city, and the southernmost northern city. Yeah, I, I would just say the last time I was there, it was on a Friday, and and people were drinking and eating chicken on the train, so it was southern. To me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. I and then um, I have a John Waters quote. Because John Waters is a Baltimore, Baltimore-born gentleman who writes in shock value, uh, quote, I would never want to live anywhere but Baltimore. You can look far and wide, but you never have discovered a stranger city with an extreme style. It's as if every eccentric in the South decided to move north, ran out of gas in Baltimore, and decided <laughs> to stay, end quote. Which, when I think about the city, is fundamentally what that city is. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's very interesting, too, because if you think about Baltimore, a case could be made that the most famous person from associated with Baltimore is Edgar Allan Poe, and I think of him as a very Southern writer. Right, right, because so. he, he didn't die in Baltimore. Did No. I think he did. But I I he died in Philadelphia. Maybe he did die in Philadelphia. Either way, the, the, the hostel is next to place he yeah. stayed. There's I, a plaque. Yeah, I think he's actually buried in Baltimore, though. He is. So is John Wilkes Booth, by the way. Uh, and his grave's my favorite to visit because it's un completely unmarked, but people leave pennies so Of everywhere. course they do. <laughs> people are assholes. Right, so there's pennies all over the Booth's family plot, and his is unmarked, but there's just like a pile of pennies. Lincoln's on the penny, um, and obviously no one's going to leave, like... $5 yeah. bill. Right. right, right. <laughs> but there are pennies all over. Um, and it's just, it's hilarious to just drive past because there's this big obelisk that says booth and it's just covered. And every once in a while they'll sweep the pennies up and, and get rid of them in, in Greenmount Cemetery. Um, but I mean, you get Frederick Douglass is from Baltimore, yeah. Harriet Tubman's from Baltimore, Billie Holiday is from Baltimore. Um, mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yep. Um, you know, Divine, John Waters, I'm more, less aware of their work. I watched Pink Flamingos probably too young. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's all of those sorts of things. I just think it's Southern, and to say that it's not um, removes a part of its history that makes it easier to digest. I kind of think it's why when you talk about even things like the West Coast, where you need to point out, like Oregon was anti-black when it was yeah, founded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, without you, a doubt. I if mean, you, right. And so if you don't talk about those sort of things, you get wrapped up in, oh, Oregon and Washington are quote unquote liberal and hippie, and you, in, and you see in those states and in Idaho, these sort of alt-right white supremacists 
groups mm -hmm. being resurgent in those spaces. Yeah. So we need to acknowledge those states' histories in the same way that we have to say Maryland is deeply beholden to the institutions that shaped what we think of the Deep South. Also, there's regional differences. The Upper South looks very different from the oh, Deep yeah, South, totally. which is, looks very different from the Gulf South. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, and, and when we were when you started this off when you were talking about it as part of the Chesapeake, mm -hmm. totally, yep. totally mm -hmm. agree with that. I mean, and you've convinced me that it's part of the South. <laughs> um, but I do think, and I, and I honestly think, and this is problematic for the South as a whole, yeah. is that a lot of the South is beholden to that idea of the yep. Confederacy yep. for its identity. You know, and it should be more than that. Just like I think that the the shame of slavery should be tarred a little further Sorry. into some of the northern states that had them and actually had them quite late. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, like, Connecticut had enslaved peoples in their state up until the eve of the Civil War. Right. Because uh, of their manumen... Philadelphia is not a state. Pennsylvania did as well. Um, so, like, I completely and totally agree. What I think is missing in the is it southern debate is the fluidity of time and space. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, in the yeah, time it's period... it's not a set time. Right. In the time period I look at, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's like, you know, there, at one point, Kentucky was the western frontier of the nation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At I'm, one point, Virginia was. At right. One, you know. um, I have that conversation with Christian all the time, because she'll say <laughs> the frontier, and like, oh, wait, the plains? Kentucky. You're talking about Kentucky. Your research is in Kentucky. And I think that's missing in this is mm -hmm. it southern debate is what time and place are you talking about because now it is the chesapeake yeah. the mid-atlantic has a very different understanding where baltimore has more in line i'm gonna get in so much trouble for saying this more in line with jersey and dc and philly and the major city and delaware wilmington i don't know sure that's, that's the capital <laughs> it's a nine i don't know <laughs> um so like that is a very different regional identity than even like New Orleans or Richmond yeah. or any of those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, I could see it now being really, really fluid and, and especially since right now Baltimore is attracting a lot of people moving to the city, um, which also is going to change the dynamics. Right. Totally. So 19th century, absolutely. Up until desegregation, still probably Southern. After desegregation and with the rise of deindustrialization, that's where I think it starts to blur a lot sure. more. Um, where I can humor people <laughs> when they say it's the North. But as someone who is born and bred a Yankee, whose dad is from a Yankee, but whose dad also had like a real Dukes of Hazard. His first car was a Charger. Oh, that's a lot. I still want a Charger. My first car was a Charger because of it. Um, so but <laughs> I, didn't, I don't have it anymore, and I drive like the whitest suburban mom car ever. You have a cute little tiny car. Okay, city hipster millennial right, right, car. Right. <laughs> you totally do have the hipster car. <laughs> um, where you see that blurring, and I think I, I think that's the way we have to talk about it. Is in this yeah. specific moment, absolutely. In other moments, maybe, but. Yeah, it's, not totally. It's rude. It's like you're you're not gonna talk to someone from New England and be like, you're actually not New Englandy. Right. <laughs> so this is the Jefferson Davis Monument. That <laughs> As um, you can see, it was completed in 1924. 1924. Yeah. 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 <sighs> <laughs> but. 
thank you for having me. I've enjoyed no. this conversation. I appreciate you coming on, and thank you, everyone. Yeah, I definitely do want to have you back oh, sure. at some point. We'll talk about all the other stuff I do on this campus. <laughs> yes. Um, but thank you, everyone, for listening to Evoking History, and we'll catch you next time.